Hello and welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden and with me is Simon Barnard, manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, which at £2.2 billion is the largest of the global smaller company funds listed on the London Stock Exchange. Simon, welcome to CityWire. This is the first time we've met, so why don't you tell start by telling me a bit, bit about yourself. Um, Smithson has a long-term investment approach, but what's your long-term story as an investor? Well, thank you, Gavin. It's great to be here. Um, investing for me, the idea of it started very early. I mean, I grew up in a family which had no money whatsoever. So for me, it was always about ideas of how to make money. And very early, I became obsessed with this concept of building wealth in the stock market. Of course, back then, I didn't really know what that meant. And it was, wasn't until my teens that I started exploring potential jobs in investing and in the city. Uh, and it's really then that I decided what I wanted to do and, and um, how. And so even, you know, my A-levels, my university course, the university itself, uh, all geared towards investing. And I even had this idea as a teenager to work for Goldman Sachs, which I eventually you did end up doing. up doing. Yes. So you had you achieved your goals very much. But um, what were your... Yeah, what, well, what were you studying? That was uh, uh, so I studied well. economics at Cambridge University. Okay, and what were your influences uh, in this this kind of formative years? Uh, well, in terms of famous investors, I mean, it's it's similar to most at that early stage. So Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, uh, but latterly it's more been Howard Marks. I read a lot of uh, even Nick Sleep, who didn't operate for that long, but had some great ideas. Okay, interesting. And um, yes, yeah, so you start your career with Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. So you've always been in in fund management. Um, what did you learn there? Because it looks like you ran two very different funds, a global income builder uh, and a global millennials fund. Yes, that's right. I mean, bearing in mind, it was my first job straight out of university. I mean, I learned almost everything I know about investing. I was exposed to some very smart people then for a long time. I was there for uh, over 14 years. Um, but, you know, as your career progresses um, and, you know, as a junior manager, as I was then fund manager, uh, I was offered the chance to start uh, with the Global Income Builder, which is a very different fund to the one that I run today. It was more focused on income and dividends. Yeah, there's no um, income coming from Smithson. Absolutely. It's all about growth and capital. Uh, so that was really the start of, of my um, portfolio management career. Uh, and then soon after, I got the opportunity to launch the Global Millennials Fund, which was a concentrated growth fund. So much more in line with what we're doing at Smithson. And the benefit of, of that juxtaposition, obviously, was to uh, discover really what suited me as an investor and where my passion lay. And I was lucky to find that in Global Millennials and then Smithson. OK, so yeah, how did you meet Terry Smith? How did you join Fundsmith? Well, that's a funny story, actually. Um, I reached out to Fundsmith. I mean, I'd been learning from Terry for many years by reading his letters, watching his video presentations. I was an investor in Fundsmith as well. Uh, and I wrote uh, to Fundsmith and said, you know, would it be possible to meet Terry? I'd love to discuss, you know, the next stages of my career. I'm just looking for advice. And so Terry graciously agreed to meet. So I went in uh, expecting to have a coffee and a chat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was shown into a boardroom with Terry in the middle, Julian Robbins, who's the head of research, and Mark Lawrence, who's the CEO of Fundsmith, and uh, was subjected to a panel interview for the next uh, nearly two hours. It's not uh, quite what you expected. I was thinking, where's the coffee, guys? Uh, and it I mean, clearly it was very enjoyable. Um, we, they had uh, went through quite a few of my positions in Global Millennials Fund. We discussed a few of the positions in Fundsmith. And by the end of the day, I had a job offer. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, so you've been at Fundsmith for five years. Um, yeah, where is your team based? And you know, how, how do you work together? Because in, in terms of running uh, Smithson, you've got an assistant manager, Will Morgan, 
and an analyst, Jonathan Imlar. Is that right? That's exactly right. So uh, Will and I are based in London and we're in the office full time. And is that the office that's near Cavendish Square? That's near it. Oxford Street? Yeah, that's okay. the you're, one. Actually, you're really there? We're really there every day, yeah. That's an unusual place for, for fund manager. It's not sort of um, it's not the, the usual city. West End. And no. It's not the city. <laughs> no. Um, no, it is different. Um, I actually, they moved there before I arrived, so I can't tell you the history behind why we ended up there. But uh, it's a great place to be and, and slightly different. I mean, uh, obviously, I've been in the city for 14 years previously, um, so it's nice to have a change of scene, but certainly not detrimental. Um, but yeah, Will and I are there every day. I think it's important to work face to face when you work, work with someone so closely as we do. And then, of course, Jonathan is based in the US, which is also very helpful because about half of our companies that we own are based in the US. So it's fantastic for him, even this week, to visit uh, companies and go to their investor days. And uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Julian Robbins, uh, I think, earlier on. So uh, head of research, is he also based in the US? He is based in the US, So they're also yes. working in the same office? Yeah. yeah, so they have an office in the US with probably about 10 people. Okay. And Terry is your you know, chief executive of Fundsmith, obviously, and running the, the flagship uh, equity fund. But he's chief investment officer f- for you at Smithson as well. That's correct, yeah. Right, so, but is he, he's mainly based in Mauritius or spends some amount of time? No, there. no, he's entirely based in Mauritius. So yep. he travels over to London for meetings uh, to see clients and also companies. Uh, although a lot now, obviously, can be done on Microsoft Teams. Um, but yes, he's based full time there. Okay. And um, yeah, we're always interested in fund managers and their skin in the game. How, how many shares in Smithson do you do you own? I had a, a look at the annual report. I couldn't actually see a figure. Yeah, it's about 100,000 shares. It is publicly disclosed, right. but um, it's hard to correlate because it comes out in dribs and drabs. But uh, I mean, that is uh, pretty much, you know, the, the significant majority of my net investable wealth. Uh, and I continue buying shares Whenever I have the money or the opportunity. In fact, I did some uh, earlier this month. Right, because the, the shares are trading at a discount. They and, certainly and are. And if you've yes. got conviction, then it's a, a buying opportunity, I guess. So, well, we're touching on the, on the on performance. So, you know, um, the investment trust is uh, four years old, uh, roughly, and after three uh, really strong years, uh, the going's got much more difficult this year. Clearly, um, you know, what would you compare this sort of growth sell-off uh, to in your experience? That's challenging because, I mean, through my career, I've lived through quite a few drawdowns. You know, I, I was I caught the tail end of the 0203 market and then 0809, which clearly was the biggest in scale compared to everything that we've had of recent times. Um, but also we had, you know, the 1112 uh, European sovereign debt crisis. We, then we had growth sell offs in 2016 and 2018. Um, so there have been uh, very different reasons for market sell offs that I've lived through. Um, and for that reason, it's hard to compare it to this one. But I would say that it always tends up, ends up to result in the same thing, which is the prior excesses of the cycle tend to get washed away. So I would say probably in this case, it's the excesses we saw in the crypto markets and in unprofitable tech companies. Um, and they don't often come back uh, as strongly as one might expect, given the sharp decline. Um, but you know, as ever, I think the important thing is to remain in those assets that you have uh, conviction in over the long term. Uh, in our case, clearly, that is the quality growth equities that we invest in. Uh, and to know that um, if those have solid foundations, that you'll make it through and survive this period and that you'll uh, live to see the other side. And the important thing and the reason I say to stay in them is because ultimately, 
uh, as you climb back out of these drawdowns, it ca there can be quite sharp corrections to the upside, which often if you are waiting in cash or other assets, uh, you may miss. And that can make up quite a substantial portion of your performance in any given year. It's important to, to, to stay invested. But um, what, yeah, there was a bit of a summer rally um, after the, the, the interims, but that seems to be petering out. Um, say a bit more about why the, the trust is underperforming uh, its uh, global uh, small to medium cap stock uh, benchmark. Um, is it all to do with the interest rate shock? Um, yes and no. I mean, Let's talk about the interest rate shock first of all. I think ultimately what we have to see is, of course, a peak in inflation, which we may be seeing. I mean, we're seeing inflation stabilizing in the US, coming off slightly in the UK, but still accelerating in Germany. So it really depends where you're looking as to the inflation that you can see. Um, but really, we won't see that inflation peak or know that it's peaked until several months later with declining data. So... From our perspective, what we're looking for is uh, a peak in the interest rate expectations of the market. Um, and clearly, as inflation progresses, you can see those expectations move. Um, and I think the summer rally you highlighted uh, really came about because for the first time this year, we saw market expectations for an interest rate decline for the first time, starting in 2023. And I think people started to get buoyed by that, that they could see the light at the end of the tunnel or at least get a handle for the shape of the interest rate uh, cycle that we're about to embark on. So, again, I don't think we need to see the end of inflation or even the end of interest rate itself uh, in terms of them those peaking, which now we don't think might be until 2024. We just need to see those expectations stabilize. And that's what I think was driving the rally in the summer. And actually also the reason why it came off again, because, of course, the Fed came out a lot more hawkish towards the end of the summer and that reset expectations higher uh, for and, and perhaps pushing out that first interest rate cut from 2023 to 24. And that's why we unwound that rally from the summer. Yeah, we seem to be a, a, a hostage to to whatever the Fed is uh, thinking or, or saying. And we're speaking just ahead of a, another interest rate decision by, by the US Central Bank. So, um, yeah, yeah, you've said that, that previously that time is the friend of investors in, in the quality growth stocks you, you like. I think, you know, as the returns compound and, and you just sit sit tight. But, um, yeah, how long now will investors have to wait for recovery? Is it It's all linked to this um, expectations around uh, inflation and interest rates, is it? I really wish I had an answer for you. Uh, uh, yes, it is clearly linked to that, but there's absolutely no way that I could possibly uh, tell or forecast when that might be. Um, but yes, it, it, it's just that we have to continue as we are until we see uh, that uh, expectation subsiding. And then hopefully uh, the strong assets that we have compounding, as you say, uh, will uh, be on our side in terms of the time. The thing is that when you own quality companies with good management teams, they tend to get better over time, which is why I say that, it, you know, time is your friend. Whereas with lower quality companies, what tends to happen is that the companies get worse over time. So if you don't see the returns come quickly, quite often you end up holding a dud. Yeah. So on the value rally that we've seen, um, you're not worried about that being a long-term sort of shift in market style? Uh, not especially. Um, I mean, we are very confident, obviously, in the companies that we own continuing to grow. So even if their valuations compress relative 
to those value types of stocks that you're describing, uh, the growth in those earnings over time will still mean that they perform well. So in some ways, we're fortunate that we don't have to carry the way whether the valuation uh, rally or the rally rotation towards value companies continues or not, because we believe that longer term, the growth in our companies uh, will mean that our performance will come through. Um, and bearing in mind that we're never considering buying value type companies, we in some ways don't have to worry about it. Okay. Now, going back to the, sort of the investment trust shares, I mean, it's, it's worth uh, highlighting that the uh, Smithson got off to a record start um, four, four years ago, raising over 180, tw- 820 million pounds, beg your pardon, and then uh, issuing 1.4 billion uh, in shares uh, in response to, to demand. But that investor demand is kind of, you know, uh, petered out this year, and uh, the board's been buying back the shares because they're, they're falling to a discount below their asset value. So, you know, that's good policy, um, but uh, no, no one's complaining about that. But d- does it cause you any difficulties as a fund manager in terms of presumably you have to sell some stocks to give the board the cash to buy back the shares? We do, but it hasn't proven that difficult to do so. I mean, in any given time, we have in our minds those companies which are closer to the door than others, and some actually which unbelievably have done well this year, which uh, are at valuations where we're happy to trim those positions. So there are certainly sources of cash that we can make available to the board for share buybacks. Right, OK. Now, um, Fundsmith uh, caused some um, yeah, shock, surprise uh, uh, the other week by announcing, or rather it was an announcement from the other investment trust in your stable, uh, Fundsmith Emerging Equity, which announced that um, you know it wasn't happy with the returns that it had been generating in emerging markets and was, was going to liquidate. So um, uh, do, do you feel under any pressure now that, I mean, you ha- had three years, very strong years, but this year's proven more difficult and the shares are trading at discount. Um, the tr- your trust has got a similar continuation policy. That the board could uh, do something similar, I-, I think. Yes, it's got exactly the same continuation policy. So we're subject to the same rules. Um, but I, I think it's a slightly different situation. Uh, and I, I'd say a couple of things on that. First, um, of course, Smithson is at a very different scale. Um, so clearly there is or has been strong investor demand for what we're offering in terms of small and mid-cap exposure. And second, in terms of performance, as you mentioned, it's been a very tough year this year. But ultimately, given the prior strong years, uh, we are still outperforming uh, since inception, which, of course, feet was not. Uh, so I think for those two quite strong reasons, uh, we are not feeling under pressure from that specific point. OK. Um, and your job is to you know, completely avoid that kind of scenario by improving the performance. So are you, uh, are you changing your approach in any way? I mean, um, you, you like IT companies and, and other, other stocks with intangible assets, um, I was reading, that are hard to replicate. Um, are you uh, amending or adapting that policy in light of what's, what's happening this year? Actually, no, not at all. If anything, the policy has got easier to implement. I mean, we really feel the pain of the shareholders this year, you know, particularly because I am one. Um, But ultimately, professionally speaking, this is a more exciting time to be operating than this time last year, because the market moves mean that uh, the quality companies that we look for have, in the most part, become a lot cheaper. Uh, And so we have already added two companies to the portfolio this year. We have our 
fingers over the triggers to maybe add a couple of more if they come into the right valuation range. Um, so actually, while we don't tend to take much action over the long term, in situations like this, when opportunities present themselves, um, certainly we look to take them. Right. Yes, because you've got the the same motto as uh, as Fundsmith uh, Equity: you know, uh, buy good companies, don't overpay, do nothing. Uh, it is an excellent motto. But I mean, um, but you don't actually do nothing. You just don't buy very much. Um, so, what have you been doing? Just um, going over the portfolio, checking everything. You really have the conviction still there, and looking out for opportunities. Yes, exactly right. So, I, I mean, in practical terms, what we've done this year, we've added uh, two companies. One called Montclair, which is an Italian branded fashion goods business and AdTech, which is a Swedish uh, industrial distribution business, um, both of which we've been following for some time, both of which obviously uh, we um, like very much and were able to purchase simply because their valuations came down into a line with what we deem acceptable in the market sell-off. And uh, yeah, well, Montclair's an interesting one, a uh, luxury fashion group. Um, but it, and its shares haven't been too, doing too badly recently. Uh, what's going on there? Are investors confident it can weather a recession? Or what are its I, strengths? I think uh, a couple of things. First, it is clearly targeted towards very wealthy people. I mean, they sell jackets from £2,000 upwards. They sell jumpers from £800 upwards and so on. And so clearly, these are very wealthy people buying their products. Now, in a recession... Um, one would tend to assume that wealthy people are less affected in terms of disposable income uh, than those lower down the spectrum. But obviously, while that means they can still purchase these items, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will. I don't think most wealthy people are so completely tone deaf that they want to be driving a new Bentley and wearing a new Montclair jacket where no one else can pay their energy bills. So I think we would certainly expect uh, demand for those products to wane in a recession. But the important thing is, as we come out of recession, because the wealthy tend to remain wealthy, they will be able to turn on their spending taps almost immediately. So when they deem it uh, appropriate to do so, I think they will start spending. And I think Montclair's demand will come back very quickly, which cannot be said for some other consumer companies that may be targeted towards lower end consumers. I see that makes sense. Um, just turning to a few other stocks, if, if I may, um, Sabre Insurance, uh, car, motor insurer is your top holding, um, issued a, a nasty profits warning uh, early this summer. Um, higher claims costs uh, are, are, are part of the problem. What's um, you know, why 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 are you? What do you like about the company? Actually, that's a, a slight um, problem with identification. Uh, we own an, a U.S. company called Saber, oh. which is in travel I software. Turned it into question, which does which does have the same name as the insurance company in the U.K. Okay, so complete. Uh, mistake by me but um okay why do you like that company and how has it been doing if it's probably not issued a profits warning then in that case well um funny you should say that um saber because they sell or they are essentially the software backbone between travel buyers like uh travel agents and consumers on website like expedia uh, and travel sellers like airlines and hotels 
but their revenue is entirely linked to the number of passengers boarded on planes or booked into hotels. So clearly through the course of pandemic, when travel all but ground to a halt, uh, their revenue fell by over 90 percent. Uh, and it's one of the few companies we own in Smithson which does have some debt, which is totally appropriate when they had uh, a reasonable and what we thought entirely recurring revenue stream became slightly more of a problem when all of their revenues disappeared. So, yes, they've had a very difficult pandemic, uh, but fortunately they had um, a good management team in place who managed to steer them through that crisis. And now that we are seeing their markets recover, actually we are quite optimistic as to the free cash flow that they can generate over the next couple of years um, and including the restructuring and the investment in technology that they have been making throughout the pandemic, we think their business may emerge even stronger than it was before. Okay, thanks for that uh, explanation. And then uh, Fevertree, obviously, uh, I think a company I'm not going to uh, misidentify. Um, long-standing holding there, um, tonic maker, obviously. Uh, it, it dropped out of the top 10 uh, recently. What, what's going on there? Is it that's the share price falling or have you been... Uh, reducing the position. Sadly, that's the share price falling. This is a company that um, we still have confidence in over the next five years, but clearly near term is in a very difficult spot. Uh, we spent some time with the management over the last six months and um, have managed to convince ourselves that um, ultimately what they are facing is uh, a cost pressure um, and some specific short-term issues primarily because they are selling a lot of tonic in the US. And at the moment, because they don't have contract bottlers in place, they're shipping a lot of product over from Europe, which we all know uh, the current logistics environment means that is uh, prohibitively expensive. So it's basically eradicated their margin. Now, those bottling plants are coming up to speed in the US. So very shortly, that uh, logistics issue should be alleviated. Um, and then aside from that, um, we're just very, uh, well, we have some confidence that their growth markets, including the US, but also Europe and in somewhere to Asia as well, um, continuing to grow. And that really is a very important metric for us to make sure that they are continuing to gain market share in those markets and uh, establish themselves uh, just as they have already done in more mature markets like the UK and Belgium. Have you been surprised by the extent to which inflation, rising cost pressures have, you know, hit so many stocks uh, in in the market and in in your portfolio? Has it been like you know putting out or checking out their fires everywhere? Um, yes and no. I mean, all companies have been hit by cost inflation, but how they've dealt with it has been very different. Most of our companies are chosen because of their very strong competitive dynamics in their markets and their ability to therefore put through higher prices on their products should it be necessary. They're also very capital light, so they don't really need to invest that much in capital expenditure, uh, and they do tend to have very high gross margins, which is uh, the margin that you achieve between the input cost of the product and the final sales price of the product. So if you've got a very high gross margin, you've got a lot to play with in terms of cost absorption before you have any type of real problems. But going back to the price increase point, so those companies that can increase prices have been doing so. And actually, in most cases, their margins have barely been affected. If we focus back specifically on Fevertree, 
they actually have a mix of that effect. So in their growth markets like the US, they have chosen not to put up price. And that is why in that particular market, they are suffering probably almost zero margin now because they're shipping it over with such high costs and the prices remained as it was. And they're doing that because they want to gain an entry or exactly increase right. their market share. And they don't want to s- slow down the momentum of the growth that they've already uh, taken a long time to build up there, which seems sensible to us. But in their more mature markets like the UK, which clearly isn't growing so fast, they have been putting up prices so that their margins are still very similar to where they were a couple of years ago. Okay. And as, as part of all this analysis, it's free cash flow is one of the keys of figures, right. metrics that you're looking at. Do you want to explain why that is? Because that's what's driving... Um, well, it could be driving dividends, but you're not really interested in the dividends, but it's the, the amount of money that's available for reinvestment in the business. Yes. Yeah, so we focus on a measure of free cash flow, which is the cash that is left after, left over after all costs, excluding a dividend and including a type of maintenance capex. So it doesn't include growth capex or acquisitions. And the reason we're interested in that free cash flow number is, firstly, it is uh, very difficult for management to influence or manipulate, uh, unlike EPS, which is a lot easier. Um, and second, because it really boils down to the true value of a company. You know, an asset is only worth the cash that it can generate. And so ultimately, we want to value our companies on that cash flow that can be maintained in a steady state of the company. Uh, and then it also obviously illustrates the amount of cash left over they have available to invest. Now, to your point on us not looking for companies that pay out dividends, that's because we seek companies that are growing and that are investing at high rates of return. And if companies have the good fortune to have those opportunities to invest at high rates of return, it makes no sense to us for them to pay out the money to us instead of investing themselves. Right. But um, so if a company did start paying dividends, does that make them kind of ineligible? It would ask questions in our minds as to what had changed in the company. They're becoming more mature, less exciting. Exactly. Their rate of growth is slowing down. Exactly. We do have some companies paying dividends whose growth is conventionally lower than others that are not. Um, But your question is an interesting one because it's around the change. And certainly the change in policy would cause a lot of questions. Right, exactly. Because I think the trust was has been receiving a little bit more cash than it has in its past. And I guess that's... Um, well, why, why would that be, actually? Well, I think... I don't know if you're talking about in absolute terms or as a percentage. Sadly, as a percentage, it would be because the share prices have gone down. Exactly. It's just what they're paying out is is, is yielding more. OK. But um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's just a wrap-up then. It's a difficult year, but looking forward, you don't know when the recovery is coming, but you're looking to the interest rates, you're looking to inflation peak, and your company's kind of getting back on on, on, the, on top of their costs and uh, restoring their margins. That's right. Actually, so far, most companies haven't suffered too greatly. Um, but of course, all those results that we're looking at are backward looking. I think the worst in terms of fundamental results uh, for our companies, for most companies, are yet to come. But the important thing is, I think, as we discussed earlier, to have confidence that those companies are solid and in our case have very strong balance sheets, have strong market 
uh, positions and potential so that whatever happens, they will survive and you have confidence that they'll be there on the other side and you stay in them to benefit from that when it happens. Okay, well, on that note, Simon, we'll leave it. So just maybe when the results come out from some of these companies, don't to take them maybe too seriously. We're looking, trying to look past that for the, for the recovery uh, whenever that occurs. Simon, it's been very interesting to talk to you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. 